Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, an Alberta court rules the federal carbon tax is unconstitutional. Certainly we respect uh, the rulings of, of all courts in this country, but I would tell you that the courts in Saskatchewan disagreed, the courts in Ontario disagreed, um, and, uh, and we look forward to the Supreme Court, which is the ultimate arbiter of issues around uh, uh, differing interpretations of jurisdiction to uh, be making the ultimate determination in March. Barricades have been taken down, but the conflict is not over. It doesn't mean the dialogue is closed, uh, far from that. We remain open for dialogue and, and, and even more committed to a peaceful resolution. And Andrew Scheer says the Prime Minister took too long to make a move. The clock started ticking 19 days ago and he did nothing up until Friday. Uh, so he's now living with the consequences that he's created. We now are looking at uh, this, a much different situation today than we would have uh, had he shown leadership early on. It's Tuesday, February 25th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Mark. What do you make of the ruling from the Court of Appeal in Alberta on, uh, on uh, carbon pricing? Uh, what does this mean in the battle between some provinces and the federal government over jurisdiction? Well, it reignites it, obviously. I mean, it hadn't really gone away, but yeah, I think the federal government was pretty, feeling pretty good with the past uh, two provincial court rulings. The courts of appeal in uh, both Ontario and Saskatchewan sided with uh, the federal government and ruled that uh, imposing a carbon tax on provinces was was constitutional within the government's jurisdiction. And now we have the Alberta Court of Appeal saying, hang on a second, no, it's not, in a, in a four-to-one ruling, uh, saying that it's not constitutional, that it's, a, it's essentially trampling on Al Alberta's uh, jurisdiction, calling it, I thought the language is really interesting, Mark, calling it a Trojan horse uh, that would allow, essentially allow the government to expand its reach into many other areas, an open-ended carbon levy that could go on for years, there's no end to it, and so yeah, it's a, a fairly um, strident rejection of the federal powers in, in uh, Alberta's jurisdiction. And I also think what's interesting, if you look at the uh, the three rulings from the provinces uh, over the last number of months, is they've they've all been uh, they've all been split rulings. There's not been a unanimous ruling, and so that sets up. A, I think there's reason to watch. I don't know that it's a slam dunk. I mean, your instinct would tell you if two provincial courts have sided with the government uh, that it may well, when it gets to the Supreme Court next month, the Supreme Court, uh, when it renders its uh, verdict, you know, may likely go the same way. But the fact that they were all split rulings makes me think it's something we're, we're worth watching. But it just comes at a time when we're talking about, you know, blockades related to, to jurisdiction over energy projects. We're talking about energy companies bailing out of major energy projects projects deciding they don't want them to go ahead and now a ruling on the carbon tax which i think just adds fuel to this fire of division over who has authority what what energy projects do we want or don't want what are we doing to support them what's the connection between energy projects and climate change policies it's all uh it seems to me it's all it is dominating the national agenda and it's not clear where it's going to take us and as you suggested it it points to a lot of turmoil here on on these kinds of issues the government uh, the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, ran on a promise of uh, achieving the right balance between the economy and the environment, and one that he thought, he made clear, that uh, a consensus could be achieved, and uh, 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 it doesn't appear as though that consensus has been achieved. 
Well, it certainly hasn't been achieved. It, it, it can be achieved one day, perhaps. I'm not sure how long it'll take, but this notion of uh, a grand bargain that was being offered to Canadians, including reconciliation, we were going to make all you know all the uh, all the contradictions and conflict were were going to go away. The government was going to fix that. We were going to bring Canadians together, and yet look where we are. We have uh, serious serious questions about. Uh, you know, about what, whether, will there be any sort of big national projects in, in energy resource development uh, other than the, than the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is owned by the federal government. So I guess that goes ahead because they bought it. But what else? And and yet you have Indigenous leaders saying that uh, reconciliation's on the rocks. You have, you know, uh, resource companies pulling out. You have, you know, uh, Albertans and people in Saskatchewan talking about Western alienation again, and uh, this court ruling, uh, I think, probably just fuels that conversation even more uh, because they will view it as a court in their province uh, deciding in favor of them, and it will it will build on this conversation of uh, out here in Alberta, leave us alone, we want to do things our way, and uh, Canadians better get that message. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to the blockades. Another. Uh, element of this story of turmoil. Uh, there was, of course, this deadline set for midnight on Sunday. Uh, the police moved in yesterday. There was there was some uh, progress, but uh, it's not completely resolved. There are other blockades that have gone up. Um, uh, obviously, uh, there are moves that can be made to take a blockade down, but it, it feels a little bit like when one goes down, another might go up somewhere else. Uh, are we in for a period of... of this kind of unrest in Canada for the foreseeable future. Yeah, at least the question is, what's the foreseeable future? Are we talking, you know, a few days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months? I think a lot will depend on what happens, you know, probably through the rest of this week. The federal government is still trying to make efforts to, to reach out uh, to the hereditary chiefs of, of the Wet'suwet'en to try and have these meetings that they haven't been able to have. Uh, they've made lots of overtures, and of course the overtures were either not responded to or rejected, which led the government to finally say, okay, look, the blockades have to come down, which clearly signaled uh, to uh, police forces that it's, and, and they said as much, the blockades need to come down, the inje- um, injunctions must be enforced. After spending two weeks saying, let's all just try to talk this out, it's clear that that's not going to work anymore for the government. So I think the next few days will be kind of crucial. Uh, I think everybody takes a big breath if there can finally be a conversation between federal ministers and the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en. But that always, that raises the question for me of what are the talks about? You know what, what's the what's the end game and the and the goal for either side of, of the talks? If the if, if the end goal for the Wet'suwet'en and hereditary chiefs is to shut down the coastal gas link project and say, look, we don't want it here, even though the twenty elected band councils along the route uh, have all said they do want it, does that mean the end of the project? And how does the federal government respond to that? Or is it from the federal government's point of view? Is it simply? the desire to be able to be seen, to be having a conversation to try and keep reconciliation alive. I think in a lot of ways what the government would really like to see here is is for this to come to a point where uh, members of the wider Indigenous community are taking the federal government side saying, look, we need to keep reconciliation alive. The conversation has started between the government and the hereditary chiefs. Stop the protest, let that process work and see where it takes us. But again, if we don't know what the ultimate objective of the conversation with the hereditary chiefs is, is what what do we end up with when that process ends? I'm not sure how that 
solves anything. If at the end of that process there's still disagreement and the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs say they've been let down or or uh, their objectives haven't been met or they're not satisfied, uh, do they still carry enough weight to trigger protests across the country because they're not happy? And we're talking, of course, about uh, throughout this conversation about the balance between the environment and the economy. The Tech Frontier Mine is another uh, kind of lightning rod issue in this space. There's been a lot of interpretation of the of the letter that was written by the CEO of Tech uh, and what it means. Uh, the opposition was very critical of the government. In fact, uh, Andrew Scheer and Justin Trudeau had a phone call yesterday, and uh, the conservative version of that phone call is that. Shear called out, Andrew Shear uh, called out Justin Trudeau for his, his weak leadership on this. So uh, what do you think can be made of that letter and, and also how people are interpreting it? Well, I think, I mean, almost everything we've talked about in the last number of minutes here, you know, has one common theme through all of it, and that is polarization. Uh, the political parties and political leaders in this country have turned all of these issues uh, or try to turn all of these issues to their own advantage and you know i've been speaking with business leaders in the last couple of days and i think that was evident in the in the letter from the tech ceo don Lindsay, that uh you know they all need to sort of find a way forward on this debate uh, between the role that energy development is going to play in this country and climate change policies and right now there is no framework that's what his letter says is in the absence of a framework uh, basically, you know, you don't have to do much reading between the lines. In the absence of a framework and any kind of agreement on how to proceed to marry these two objectives, energy development and climate change uh, policies that uh, protect the environment, uh, there's no point trying to do business in, in Canada. That's essentially what his letter says, and that's what I'm hearing from business leaders in this country that they're hearing from outside the, the country. I had a conversation on my program last night, Mark, with uh, Goldie Heider, the CEO of the Business Council of Canada, who said, you know, he was he recently was overseas and ran into a, a foreign uh, uh, investor uh, who said to him, look, what am I dealing with in Canada? Are you one country or are you 10? Wow. And so they're, they're very aware outside of Canada of the conflict involved in trying to get stuff done here. And I think it's been thrown in front of all Canadians uh, in this letter from the, from the tech CEO. The question is, how will political leaders respond to it? And the call from the business community is to try to find the middle ground, put political partisanship aside, because this conversation, this argument, because uh, that's what, what it really is in the country, is driving away investment, and it's starting to, it's going to have a big, big impact on the Canadian economy. Uh, just beyond, Al- you know, beyond Alberta, it'll start to raise questions about what can be done in any circumstance. Big projects, maybe it's not energy projects, maybe it's not resource projects, maybe it's other projects, but it's a level of uncertainty that is is starting to be felt well outside of Canada's borders. Yeah. All right. We'll see how these issues play out over the next few days. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. We've set the scene for a happy day everywhere, Mark. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Take care. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. I've been on the phone with major investors in the past several days who have cancelled, frozen, and suspended major projected investments in our economy because of the massive uncertainty created by the appearance of anarchy in parts of this country. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Financial Post, Joe Oliver argues the tech resources decision proves Canada is inhospitable to energy development. Oliver writes, 
Well over $120 billion of projects have been canceled in the past three years, and the latest may signal the death knell for future projects. Justin Trudeau needs to focus on growing the economy, building pipelines, investing in science and technology, and adapting to a changing climate. He must also forge a fair, constructive, and practical relationship with Aboriginal peoples. These actions would serve our national interests and the world's. At cbc.ca, Max Fawcett argues Tech's decision on the frontier mine should be a wake-up call. Fawcett writes, There are many who don't want to acknowledge that capital markets are pricing in the risks associated with climate change or that oil sands mines with 40-year lifespans are no longer viewed as attractive investments. They would prefer to fight for the restoration of this past rather than come to terms with the reality of a lower-carbon economy. But Tech's decision should be a wake-up call that it's time to move forward and a reminder that bets on the past don't tend to pay out in the future. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues the Trudeau government must close the gap between its rhetoric and action. The Star writes, No government has spoken more about the importance of reconciliation than this one. No government has set aside more money to support services for Indigenous people. Yet here we are, with many Indigenous people more embittered than ever, and a troubling number of other Canadians resentful that things seem to be sliding backwards. The government must learn the lessons. Most importantly, perhaps, it should stop letting its rhetoric get ahead of its actions. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. An NDP Member of Parliament from Windsor, Ontario, is making a third attempt to change Canada's legislation to allow single-wager betting. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark Windsor, Ontario NDP MP Brian Massey will table his private member's bill to legalize single wager betting in Canada's casinos. Now, this may sound familiar. Massey first introduced this legislation in 2011 as a private member's bill. It received all-party support and was sent off from the House of Commons to the Senate. It was well on its way to becoming law until the Senate started hearing from a number of professional sporting groups. The bill stalled in the Senate for almost two years and died on the order paper at the election. Mr. Massey tried a second time in the last Liberal government back in 2016, but his private member's bill was voted down when Liberal MPs did an about-face and voted in the opposite way than they had five years ago. The argument is that Canada's casinos, and Massey knows this well coming from Windsor and one of Canada's biggest casinos, are losing hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions, on sporting events, single-event betting that goes south to the United States where it is legal. Massey's bill is widely supported by chambers of commerce, unions, and some regional associations. However, there's a fierce lobby against single-event betting by some professional sports groups, which is ironic because it's legal in their largest market, the United States. So, Mark, the the whole debate will kick off again, the debate over the multi-billion dollar wagering industry with the tabling of this private member's bill. Thanks, Martin. Also today, Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will make a funding announcement at the Canadian Federation of Agriculture annual general meeting in Ottawa. Also in Ottawa, Minister of Middle Class Prosperity Mona Fortier will speak at the Parliament 2020 conference. She'll also take part in an armchair discussion. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, February 25th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.